you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, as we continue to study through the book of Revelation, um, uh, revealing Jesus as champion. The cathedrals used to sing a song called The Champion of Love, and that's who Jesus is, and that's who John reveals him to be in the book of Revelation. So we want to take a look at that tonight, and uh, we'll do most of chapter 10, if not all of chapter 10, uh, this evening. We'll start by reading the first four verses tonight of Revelation chapter 10, but we'll, as I said, we'll work our way through probably uh, the whole chapter. So uh, take a look, if you will, Revelation chapter 10 and the uh, first four verses where the Bible says, and I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. And now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. As I was studying uh, the last couple of weeks, I come across a um, guy named Robert Ingersoll. Robert Ingersoll was a... Uh, very outspoken atheist, uh, very defiant of God, very defiant toward Christians, and he would do uh, debates, he would give lectures and talks, uh, speaking against God, um, uh, against the existence of God, things like that. And one of the stories that came out, now, now that part is absolutely true, he's written books and things, you can, I wouldn't ask you to buy them, I wouldn't want you to buy them, but he's written books and things on atheism and why Christianity is not true and all that kind of stuff. One of the stories I heard and saw it on several sites, I never could really find a place to for sure to decide this is he actually did this or not it sounds like him so whether the story's uh, fictional or it's true it sounds like him it makes the point I want to make tonight so don't quote me as this being absolutely true but one of the things they said that he would say uh, during his lectures was after uttering all manner of blasphemy against God I mean just out and out blasphemy against God he would say all right if God is a holy God and God judges the blasphemers, I'm going to give God five minutes to kill me. And then he'd stand there for five minutes. Which, y'all, now as I said, I, that may be a, an apocryphal story. Uh, it sounds like him. Several sites say it's true. I, don't, I never could find a place to, for sure, uh, document that story. But think about that. If that is true, think about it. Five minutes is a long time. They said he'd stand there with his watch. All right, that's one minute. I'm still good. Two minutes. That's still good. Three minutes, that's still good. And then when five minutes is up, he would say, so that proves that God does not exist. They asked Joseph Parker, a British pastor, about uh, Robert Ingersoll. And I love the way the British say things. And I love the way this pastor said things. He said, and did the American gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of the infinite God in just five minutes? <laughs> and did the American gentleman think, <laughs> I love the way they say that, that this, he could exhaust the patience of God in just five minutes. Well, uh, you can't. And that's the reason what we have here in, in Revelation chapter 10 is we have a, a sort of a break in the action. Uh, last time we saw six of the seven trumpets sounded and, um, and just the judgments of God on the earth taken away. A part of the sun and stars were dimmed, a third of them, a third of the trees and stuff were burnt up. Uh, you have signs in the heavens. You have demon locusts being turned loose. You've got demons belching out of hell itself, roaming the face of the earth. 
And then, I mean, it's just awful. I mean, it's just truly awful. And then when you get to Revelation 10, you get a break, uh, for which we can say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> you kind of need a break after all those six trumpets are sounded. And in, in Revelation chapter 10, you get, a, you get an interlude all the way till chapter 11, verse 15. That's when the seventh trumpet is going to sound. And we're going to hear some trumpets in uh, Revelation 10. But the seventh trumpet, the seventh judgment trumpet, isn't going to sound until chapter 11, verse 15. And so what we have here in chapter 10, as I said, is a little bit of a break in the action. And it's, I, I think John probably needs it. Um, when Laura and I got home last Sunday night, I was exhausted. I don't know about y'all, but I was exhausted last Sunday night. We come home, we sat on the couch, and we just looked at each other and went, that was a lot. And you think about it, um, it's a lot for John. He's seeing all this. I mean, we're hearing about it, and hearing about it's enough, and, and, and I'm preaching about it, describing it, and studying it. I mean, it's enough to hear about all the horrific things. I mean, these things are absolutely horrific that are going to be happening upon the earth, whether they're absolutely literally real or whether they're symbolic. It doesn't matter what stance you take. It's got to be awful. And John is caught up. He's being forced to watch all this and see all this. And I think the message of uh, Revelation chapter 10 is that in the middle of the most horrific devastations the world will ever see that John is picturing. Now, he's not in it, but he's picturing it. Um, God gives John a break. And I think it teaches us that God cares about us individually. And that in the midst of some of the most horrific things you go through in life, in the midst of some of the uh, most horrific tribulations, some of the hardest things you go through in life, uh, chapter 10 is a reminder to us that God still cares for His children, that whatever trouble you face, God is bigger than that trouble. God has, I mean, it, it looks like when you read those, those six tr uh, trumpet blasts and what happens after them, it looks like the very fabric of the universe is ripping apart. I mean, it looks like all hope for earth has, has ceased. I mean, if you don't know what's happening in heaven, if you don't know what's happening uh, from God's point of view, if all you've got is, is earth, it looks like the whole thing's just coming to pieces. And yet we know, we know, and God reassures us here in chapter 10, that God's still in control no matter how horrific things may look here on the earth. We, um, we can know that God is with us and God is for us and nothing has happened that God did not know. Watch this. He did not know was going to happen. But what we need to do is to not just pray for his provision, but to 
And we hit that expression several times in the book of Revelation, and I saw. What John means when he says, and I saw, is we're kind of making a turn. We're furthering the sequence along, or something new is about to happen here. What we have here is, like I said, a little bit of a break in the action. So we know tonight that God knows how to take care of his people in the midst of worldwide catastrophe, in the midst of the most horrific things that people could ever, ever happen we know hell will not triumph. God is still sovereign, and Jesus is still champion, and Christians, we need to be comforted tonight knowing that God is still in control. Now, we cry out sometimes, why all the evil? Why doesn't God stop the evil? Why doesn't God intervene sooner? And we're going to look at a little bit of that tonight. How do we... How do we get encouraged? How do we get refreshed when it looks like evil's out of control and the shootings are out of control and the violence is out of control and our leaders are out of control? How do we get refreshed? How do we get encouraged in our faith when it looks like things are just kind of getting out of control? Let me mention three things tonight that I hope will encourage you. First of all, God gives us a reminder of his greatness. When God refreshes us, he gives us a reminder of his greatness greatness, when evil seems big, and when our troubles seem big, and sometimes they are, sometimes they are big. Uh, I, had a, I came across a, uh, a saying, when I, a book I was reading when I was in college, and I, I still remember it because it, to me it just impacted me in a big way. It said, people with big problems have a small God, and people with a big God have small problems. Um, I don't believe that quite as much as I used to <laughs> because I think you can have a big God and still have big problems, right? Uh, they do not seem as big if you can be reminded of the greatness of God. Compared to the greatness of God, they're not that big. But more to us, they can sure seem awful big, can't they? Look at Revelation chapter 10. Let's look at it again. And I wanted you to see that what I think God's doing here is reminding us of how great he truly is. Look at what it says. I saw still another mighty angel. Coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. A rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. So we see a uh, Another mighty angel. As I said, this is not the seventh angel blowing the seventh trumpet. It's a different angel. He's a, he's a, he's a mighty angel. Another mighty angel. Uh, some people think this is Jesus uh, because it says he puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. talks about he roars as with the voice of the lion. And, uh, in fact, one person that I greatly respect, and I won't use his name tonight because I disagree with him, but one person I greatly respect, I have an awful lot of respect for uh, believes this is Jesus. In, in fact, the whole chapter 10 is about Jesus. I don't think it's Jesus. I think it truly is an angel, and this is the reason why. When John introduces Jesus, he makes it pretty clear it's Jesus. Uh, in the Old Testament, Jesus is sometimes referred to as the angel of the Lord. You can see, and a lot of times if you read the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that is Jesus. In the New Testament, he's not referred to as an angel. He's not referred to as the angel of the Lord. And the other thing is, he says, I saw another mighty angel. Well, you can't use another and then use Jesus because he's like no other. 
okay? And the other thing is that word another, there's two words that John can use there. One word is the word alon or alos, which means the same as of the like kind. And that's the word he uses here. And so another of the same kind of angel, okay? If it's a, there's another word called heteros, you think of the word heterosexual. The word heteros means another of a different kind. It's that, that would be the word you would expect John to use if he was talking about Jesus. Another but of a different kind. That's not the word he uses. He uses another of the same kind. So I think this is really talking about a mighty angel. And the idea here is as big and mighty and awesome as this angel is, he's simply a servant of God. It points to the greatness of Almighty God. And I don't know that we have to, you know, picture an angel so big he can put a foot on the sea and one on the land. By the way, you can, you know, depending on how far out in the sea you put your foot, right? You can do that pretty close. But the idea here is, is that this guy has got, been given power from God to rule over a lot, right? Over land and sea is what he's talking about here. So this, awesome, this angel is really, really an awesome angel. And the angels are mentioned 66 times in the book of Revelation. 66 times the word angel is mentioned. And there's kind of four groups in, of angels in the book of Revelation. There's commissioned angels. These angels are sent with a message from God. They're sent to take a message to John or somebody else. Uh, Gabriel, when he brought a message to Mary, was a commissioned angel. There's also judgment angels. These are the angels that pour out the bowls of wrath and blow the seven trumpets. They're judgment angels in Revelation. There are warring angels in Revelation. We'll see more toward the end where Michael and his angels fight against Satan. And there are adoring angels, worshiping angels, angels in the presence of God that are singing holy, holy, holy. And uh, we, that's, that's who I want to be. If I was gonna, and we're not angels, right? But if I was going to be one, I think I'd want to be that guy. This angel is clothed with a cloud. That's to point to the majesty and the power and the glory that he has received from God. He's not that in and of himself. This is received from God. And especially, I think this is linked to judgment. Jesus said, uh, talked to this sometimes like in Matthew 24, when he said, you'll see the Son of Man coming with judgment in the clouds. And so with the context of Revelation, I think this mighty angel we see would be another one of the judgment angels. He has a rainbow around his head. Earlier in Revelation, we saw a rainbow was an emerald rainbow. This, this doesn't have a, have a color to it, but I think what this is talking about is judgment mixed with covenant. You have judgment, but you also have the reminder, what is the rainbow of? That God won't destroy the earth by rain again, right? And so I think it's very, very gracious of God in the middle of all this judgment stuff going on here to say, I am a God of judgment, also a God who keeps my covenant. I'm a God who keeps my promises. I'm a God who still offers mercy. I'm a God who still offers a way out of the judgment, which is, of course, we know through his son. So it's a reminder that even in the time of God's great judgment, there is also a reminder of God's mercy. The Bible says his face is like the sun. Once again, shining in brilliance reminds us of the Shekinah glory. The, the word Shekinah is the outshining, the outgoing glory of Almighty God that this angel has received. See, the idea is if this angel is this great and this glorious, God is infinitely more so. It's a reminder to John that in the midst of all that you're seeing, God is so much bigger. It says that his legs, and the word there for, for feet is a word that would include feet and legs. 
and it says they're like pillars of fire, which would indicate his unbending holiness. The word holy means cannot do wrong, right? Completely different from us. Remember this morning the verse from Psalm 119, the Lord is good and he does good. In the midst of judgment, in the midst of all these horrific things, God still is good and he still does good. And so the magnitude and the majesty and the glory of this angel uh, reminds us to stand in the awe of God. It reminded me back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. That's a hundred million plus thousands upon thousands. Now, sometimes people talk about, man, there's so many demons in the world, so much demonic activity in the world, and there is, right? There is. That's not to be trifled with. But when Satan fell, there was a third of the angels that fell with him, which means what? They're outnumbered. <laughs> Two-thirds did not fall. And y'all, the thing about angels are they're here to bring us comfort. We don't worship angels. We don't pray to angels. We, you know, we, but we are to be glad for them. As you think about, here's this, we start to think about all the mighty angels, mighty angels, this kind of an angel. And then in Hebrews 1.14, in the New Living Translation, it says, therefore, angels are only servants. Spirit sent to care for people who inherit salvation. Just another way of reminding us and encouraging us, man, there are forces way bigger than you and I can ever dream of that are on our side. <laughs> and they're not bigger than God, but they're sent to care for us by God. God is mightier than they. God rules all the forces. God even rules the supernatural forces of the universe. And this picture of this mighty angel is bigger than the way many of the Greeks portrayed their gods. It's kind of like God saying, y'all's gods don't even compare to my angels. <laughs> my angel's bigger than your gods. And that just magnifies how big our God really is. And then in verse uh, chapter 10, verse 4, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Don't really know, you know, we don't know what the seven thunders are. Um, perhaps it's God himself. Perhaps it's the Holy Spirit. He's called the seven spirits of God sometimes. We don't really know. But here's the thing that's interesting and frustrating about this. Look at what it says. The seven thunders spoke. John's about to write it down, and then God says, don't write that down. That's like your child coming in and saying, Mommy, Daddy, I, I've got something I need to tell you. Okay, dear, what is it? Uh, I changed my mind. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> like, oh, no, you're going to tell me now. <laughs> you've, you've got to tell me now. And, and it is it's like, okay, now I want to know what he said. What did you say? What? Don't tell me if you're not going to spell it out, right? And so I've thought about that. For, why would God put that in there? And uh, my best idea, and I think this is probably true, is that God has set boundaries for what is best for us today. God has set boundaries. Some things it's just not best for you and I to know. There's some things beyond our knowledge. There's some things that we cannot understand. If he did tell us, sometimes we want explanations for things. And I think sometimes if God did, and I do, I'd have like, God, I don't get that. Why in the world would you allow that to happen? Why in the world would it go that way? And and uh, I think sometimes the explanation, if he gave it to us, wouldn't help us that much. And sometimes I think if he said it to us, we wouldn't We just are not capable of understanding. But there's some things we just don't know. And here's the thing. We need to be wise enough to know what we don't know. 
Some Christians really make some hurtful statements at times by saying things they don't know. The reason why somebody's two-year-old passed away, we don't know. And it's best not to try to guess. The reason why somebody is going through cancer at 35 years old and they got three children at home, uh, you know, we don't know why that is. And it's probably best for us to keep our mouths shut about things that we don't know. And there's things like the second coming, which even Jesus said he didn't know. And there's things about that that we should not be dogmatic about. We are to look for it tonight. In fact, there was a prophecy teacher in 1981 promised, didn't, he didn't say thought, promised, based on Bible prophecy that in the next 12 months, Iran would fall into the hands of the Soviet Union. It was right on God's timetable. Well, we know that didn't happen. The Soviet Union was absolutely dispersed. In the days of the Revolutionary War, with the Stamp Act in the, uh, in, amongst the colonies, there was one uh, guy who put out a track or a pamphlet uh, that said that, we were that the colonists were to avoid all documents with the hated stamp, lest by touching any paper of this impression you receive the mark of the beast. That King George of England was the Antichrist. Somebody calculated, and this is, I see this kind of stuff every once in a while. Somebody calculated that in both Greek and Hebrew, the words royal supremacy in Great Britain had the numerical value of 666. So he was the Antichrist. And we know that wasn't true, right? And so we've got to be careful about being dogmatic. There are boundaries to what God has let us know. There are some things we do know. That's what we're going to get to next. Second thing is the reassuring of God's message. While there are some things we cannot be too dogmatic about, some things we, we're not sure about, we don't know, God, God has set boundaries on it. Second thing is he reassures us there are some things we do know. <laughs> some things we can stomp our foot about. Some things we can say this is God's truth and we know it. Look at Revelation chapter 10 verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore. What are you saying? Man, when an angel raises his hand and says, this is absolutely the truth. You know, you're getting truth, right? You're getting absolute truth. I mean, it's almost like God saying, this is just as strong a way as I know to tell you this is the truth. Swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea, the things that are in it, that there should be no delay, there should be delayed no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. What's he saying? This delay time is about to come to an end. It really is. And for you and I, we look at that word in verse 7, it talks about the word mystery. Word mystery. Um, so what does that word mean? What does the word mystery mean? The word mystery in the Bible means something that has been, re has been kept secret but is now revealed. And a lot of the mysteries of God, we know. God has revealed them. And that's the beautiful thing about the mysteries. They were, in the past, only God knew them. But now, especially with the New Testament, many of the mysteries of the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, we're privileged to know what they are. Look, if you will, in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26 in the New International Version. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message which I proclaim about Jesus Christ, and keep him with the revelation, watch, of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed. That's the idea of mystery in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Often it was, it was concealed long ago, but now it's revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God that all the Gentiles might come to obedience that comes through faith. 
So let me just give you a couple of ideas, things we know for certain that God has revealed. They used to be mysteries, but they're not mysteries anymore that we can count on tonight. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. This will help us. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The thing that we know for sure is the grave's not the end. The thing we know for sure is that no matter how hard the trouble is, one day we're going to die, and as we heard in discipleship training in our class tonight, if we die or if we stay alive, we're good either way because we're going to be changed into the likeness of Jesus. We're not going to live in this pain forever. We're not going to live in confusion forever. We're not going to live in hurt and pain forever. We're not going to live with this disappointment forever. There is going to come a day. God has written it down. We will be changed. And we say what? Thank you, Lord. Ephesians 3, 6, this is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Jewish people were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, right? And Gentiles could become proselytes, you know, they could go through a, a, a deal where they could become proselytes, but still the Jews sort of saw them as second-class citizens a little bit, you know. And what does this promise us? We're Because we're the Gentiles, right? We're the ones on the outside. We are members of the same body and partakers of all the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Every promise God made, they're part, uh, they're fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Give me one more to kind of reassure you. I think what God's doing is reassuring him here. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery? Christ in you the hope of glory and so this is reassuring to us what that we're going to be changed that we're partakers of the body of Christ and that Christ lives in us no matter what happens to you those things will always be true and you can always count on them no matter what darkness or trouble uncertainty you and I might live in don't doubt what God has made count on the promises that God has told us for certain. Now, what it says here is there'll be no more delays. You know, sometimes people make fun. Well, good night. You know, Jesus said he's coming back. It's been 2,000 years. You know, why all the delay? Why? How come he hasn't come back already? So people can be saved. That's the delay. That's the reason why the seventh angel hasn't sounded the trumpet yet. That's the reason why the final trumpet hasn't sounded yet is why there are people tonight that are living under the judgment of God, and God is giving you and I time to share the gospel with them, to tell them about Christ, to talk about whatever it is in our life that God's done for us, to try to help people see that God's way is best, that being saved is much, much more than chasing the things of the world. And we uh, don't know, we don't know. One of, as we heard today, some of you have heard today, one of our members uh, driving down the road was hit, drive about 40 miles an hour, hit in the back of his truck by a guy driving 100 miles an hour that never touched his brake. He's here. <laughs> He's fine. But think about it. You know, you, and Rhonda was telling us about some of the bus driving training they go through, and she said, y'all would be, be scared to death if you knew all the stuff's going on on the roads out there, <laughs> people driving around doing all manner of things. We don't know when our last day is, when somebody else's last day is, and so we need to be passionate during the delay to share the gospel because what? There's going to come a day when we can't do that anymore. There's some things we can do here we can't do there, and sharing the gospel is probably one of the biggest ones. So God is telling us what? I will fulfill my promises. 
count on it. He's reassuring us of that. And last of all, he's recommissioning us with God's mission. He's recommissioning us with God's mission. Reminds us of God's greatness, reassures us of God's message. As we were singing the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness tonight, I got thinking about some of the reassurance of God's message in that song. I, I couldn't help, but well, I could, but I didn't want to help sharing that last verse with you again. Pardon for sin. Isn't that a greatest something for certain? Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Pretty good message right there, isn't it? Watch out. Thine own dear presence, God's very presence with us, to cheer, to bring joy, and to guide us. Strength for today. Thank you, Lord. What it says, and bright hope for tomorrow. Everybody say bright hope. And bright hope for tomorrow. And it's like the hymn writer just got overcome with all the presence of God, with all the promises of God, with all the reassurances of God. And he says, bless all these things, all mine, all mine in Jesus with 10,000 beside. I think if he was a member of Hope World, he would have said, I am blessed and then some. So so we get to this, once we know what's happening, we're recommissioned. We are fortified with God's message, reminder of God's greatness. Why? So we can be reassured and go out with a re, re-firing with God's mission. I was reading about a mom who wrote um, in a, her blog the other day. She said that, um, always been afraid of bees, wasps, bees, you know, those kind of things. And I uh, said she just, every time she see a bee, she just freak out and run. And um, she has a newborn now. And I uh, said she was driving to town or got in her car and just kind of pulled out of the driveway and I uh, had the six-month-old, three-month-old, something like that, in the back seat and a bee flew into her car. How many of y'all know who Mr. Miyagi is? Anybody know who Mr. Miyagi is? Karate Kid. Okay, Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi. She said, I'm Mr. Miyagi. Boom! You ain't messing with my baby. <laughs> she said, I squeezed him and threw him out the window. See, sometimes you just got to be reassured that what we're fighting for and what we're striving for is worth it, right? Mr. Miyagi, those spiritual warfare things, right? So when we're, we're, and sometimes when we're hurting and we're overwhelmed, sometimes our spoken message is heard even louder. Sometimes it means even more. I mean, you get Paul and Silas. They had been testifying about Jesus, but when they're beaten and they're put in jail and they're praying and singing in jail, uh, their testimony was heard by the jailer. He, they, they were able to lead him to Christ. And don't you know, they probably hated that experience, but don't you know, they would come out of that saying, you know, that jail was, was a terrible place. You know, boy, aren't you glad we led that jailer to Sometimes it's through your hard time when you share what God is doing and you share the message of Jesus, even though it's hard. Uh, sometimes that's the best part of the hard time, and that's the part you'll remember. Look at verses 8 through 11 as we kind of close it out. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again. Go take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So what is the little scroll? Seems to be different from the seven scrolls earlier that were sealed up. Uh, we don't really know. Some people think it's the rest of the book of, of Revelation. I kind of lean that direction. Whatever it is, it's a 
message of prophecy, a message of prophetic judgment that John's going to preach. We do know that that's at least that's what it is. And so he tells John uh, to eat it. Now, he told Jeremiah the same thing. He told him to eat the words of a scroll. He told Ezekiel to eat the... I don't think he's literally talking about eating a book, okay? He's talking about take the words in. And the word eat there means to devour, to devour it. Like I do shrimp fettuccine, right? Like Johnny does ice cream, <laughs> right? How many of y'all don't eat but devour ice cream? Can I get, can I get a witness? All right, I think a couple of y'all lie. I think there's more people than that in there. All right? He says, devour it. Eat. What's he saying? Take the words of this message in the very deepest part of your being. And he said, it's going to be like honey. It's going to be sweet. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. The words are going to be sweet like honey because what? Because Christ is going to be glorified. Evil's going to be put down. God's people are finally going to be set free forever and ever. Satan's going to be chained up. Satan's going to be done away with. And so it's going to be sweet, but it's going to be bitter. Why? Because some people are going to hell. Judgment is still coming. Horrific things are still on the way. And so, and see, guys, that's one of the things about our message. And one of the things that it's hard is that some of the message we have is sweet. Some of it's bitter. It's sweet if we believe, right? It's sweet if we trust. It's sweet if we walk with Jesus, but we can't back away from the bitter things, from the things that say, apart from God, uh, it's going to be bad. Life, your life is not going to work well, and your eternity is going to be horrific if you go away from God. It's not all, our message is not always pleasant things. With God, our lives are meant to run in alignment with God, and they will not work well. It might work, work okay for a while, but it will not work well if we don't align ourselves with Him in eternity. We really do an awful thing. Let me show you a short video tonight as we close. Uh, uh, Rhonda actually shared this video with me, and she shared it with the teenagers Sunday night. And so any questions you have about this, talk to John Isaac or Joel. They can answer any questions because they'll have seen it twice. But it related to the, well, I watched it, it related to the message so well because it talks about I want you to hear this young lady, Ann Wilson. She's 21 years old. She's the one that made the song, uh, Let Me Tell You About My Jesus. I think she wrote it. I'm not sure she wrote it. She did write it. So she wrote the song, Let Me Tell You About My Jesus. When there is no way, he'll make a way. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Well, I, I had no idea of uh, kind of the backstory uh, of her life. And so I want you to see um, how through a really, really difficult time in her life, God has used her speak his message in a very powerful way through songs like that. Watch it through that. Growing up, I would always look up into the sky and stare at the stars. I always dreamed of being an astronaut and working for NASA. I never imagined doing anything else. I started playing piano when I was six years old, and I absolutely hated it. My mom made all three of us take lessons Jacob hated it the most out of all of us. Jacob loved to hunt. He loved being in the outdoors more than anything. Look how cute she is. This is Sally, um, Jacob's hunting dog and best friend. One of my favorite things about Jacob was he would never say a bad word about anyone. If I would even start to say something bad about someone, he would immediately stop me. 
He was the kindest person I've ever met. He would always make everyone feel so included and loved and welcome. Jacob was always the life of a party. He was always so funny and goofy and was just such a joy to be around. It was 3.30 in the morning and my sister came running into my room. She said, Anne, I think something happened to Jacob. And so I look outside and the only thing I can see are flashing blue lights. I run downstairs and the first thing I see are six policemen standing in front of my front door. They all had really sad faces. So I walked into the living room and I see my parents. My mom was sitting on the chair, screaming and crying. My dad was sitting on the couch with his head in his hands. And I just walked over to him and I just said, Dad, is he dead? He had just died in a car accident three hours prior. I was in shock. I couldn't even cry at that moment. It's probably the most hopeless feeling in the entire world when you lose someone that you love. It almost feels like you cannot take your next breath. I heard the Lord say to me so clearly, Anne, are you gonna trust me or are you not? So I turned around and I faced the doors in that room and I said to the Lord, Jesus, I trust you. As a family, it was very devastating to lose Jacob. When you lose someone you love, there's a decision that has to be made. It's very easy to be angry at the Lord and to blame Him, but the Lord really showed me that I needed Him more than anyone and that He's sovereign and that He's good no matter what. Yes, I have questions and, and it's okay to have questions, but there was no point for me to be angry at the Lord when I needed Him most. The next morning, um, I got some time to myself and I sat down at the piano and I just started to sing What a Beautiful Name. I really just took that time to thank the Lord for giving me Jacob for the years that I had him. And as I was playing and just worshiping the Lord, my parents um, came in and they heard me singing it and they asked me if I would be willing to sing it at the funeral. And at first I said, no, absolutely not. Uh, I had never sang in front of anyone before. And so I sat down with the Lord and I just talked to him and prayed with him. And I just, I really felt him calling me to sing at the funeral. And so I eventually decided that I would sing and I got some friends together and we put together a version of What a Beautiful Name. As I walked up on stage and I sat at the piano, the Lord took every bit of nervousness away from me. I heard him say to me so clearly that I was called to worship him. And he was saying to me, I'm calling you to worship me, to praise my name and to glorify me. And at that point, I had no further interest in NASA or doing anything like that. And all I had in me was the desire to worship the Lord and praise him. The Lord has really put on my heart how he can bring beauty from ashes and has done that completely in my life. 
feel so honored and grateful that I get to share that with people and that I get to tell my story with people on how the Lord completely has transformed this awful and depressing and terrible tragedy into something so beautiful. For me, moving forward, no matter how hard this gets, I'm choosing to trust God.